At times, Jeremiah is known or called sometimes the weeping prophet. But there's an interesting passage here that I'd like for us to consider. Uh, Jeremiah 16 and verses 5 through 8. For thus says the Lord, Do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, loving kindness and mercies. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. Neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Nor shall men break bread in mourning for them, to comfort them for the dead. Nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. Also, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them, to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease from this place before my eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. Here's the prophet that wrote Lamentations, and of course we recognize that, that weeping, that sadness over the, the end of the kingdom of Judah, the end of God's place for his people, we recognize that he had that weeping, he had that sadness about that, but here he's being expressly told by God, don't go to the house of mourning, do not lament them, do not bemoan them. And we see so many passages like this in the book of Jeremiah. And it makes me think about how we deal with things in our day and what we see in our culture and in our time. It makes me think about how many people seem to think that uh, just things are bad and they're just getting worse and they've just been getting worse and worse over time. The reality is that it's been worse before. And arguably, you can say, actually, according to the Bible, it's not arguable that the time before Jesus was far darker than the time that we have now. I'd like for us to look at the mission of Jeremiah and pull some strength from these passages to help us understand the perspective that we ought to have on our mission as Christians. We're not going to make a whole lot of points of uh, application, uh, direct application until the end. But I want us to be thinking as we read through these passages as to what the Lord is telling Jeremiah to do, what the Lord is telling Jeremiah to say, and what that ought to mean for our life in Christ. But first of all, what we want to recognize in the book of Jeremiah, Judah is portrayed as having a defiant and rebellious heart. Go back to Jeremiah in, uh, chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5. And this is not comprehensive, by the way. There are other passages that we could look at. But the point of this study this morning, this, this uh, lesson this morning, is for us to just, just simply think about the mission that Jeremiah had in front of him and what God was telling him to do and how to do it. Jeremiah 5, and we'll be looking in verse 20. Jeremiah 5 and verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding. 
who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not? Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence, who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it? And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not please the, plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper, and the right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? He tells Jeremiah to proclaim in Judah. Proclaim this in Judah. We're talking about the kingdom that has, out of the two of the divided kingdom, a more decent track record, right? Uh, Israel, it seems, has already fallen to Assyria, yet this track record utterly fails in the end. He calls them foolish. He calls them without understanding. The footnote I have for that, actually, in verse 21, is without heart. Without the right kind of heart. Without the, the focus that they need. They have eyes that cannot see. They have ears that cannot hear. It makes us think, of course, back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 in verses 9 and 10. And he said, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. God, of course, wanted to save his people. But we recognize at the same time that they themselves were resisting him. And in this passage, he's essentially saying they're resisting the one that put the sand on the seashore. They're resisting the one that made life what it is. What is the culprit? What is the problem? The problem is sin. The problem is sin. And we recognize that their iniquities have removed themselves uh, from good. And one of the things we recognize throughout the book of Jeremiah, and of course other of the prophets, is the common thread that Israel and Judah are only hurting themselves by embracing wickedness. God emphasizes that you're doing what's not good for you. He's not focused on necessarily that this is wrong, even though it is. But, you know, by the way, you're not doing yourself any favors. You're not helping these things. This should make us consider some, some things about this world that we live in now and the mentalities that we find out there in the world, the mentalities that we ourselves can have. We believe that we can find something else or something better. 
than what God has given us. And this is difficult for Judah to see, right? Because they are prospering in spite of their wickedness. And I'll say that when when we prosper, when we are doing well in sin, that's what makes it very, very hard to resist that sin. It makes it very hard to see that there's sin in the first place when we have such, such providence, such blessings. In fact, Judah loves the deficient nature of their situation. They love the fact that the prophets are prophesying falsely. They love the fact that the priests are ruling by their own power, basically saying, you're going to do what I say because I say it, rather than because the Lord has said it. Even their own leadership is acting against their best interests. Let's keep reading chapter 6 and verse 1. Chapter 6 and verse 1. O you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa, and set up a signal fire in beth Hakarim. For disaster appears out of the north, and great destruction. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. The shepherds with their flock shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents around her, against her all around. Each one shall pasture in his own place. Prepare war against her. Arise, let us go up at noon. Woe to us, for the day goes away, for the shadows of the evening are lengthening. Arise, and let us go by night, and let us destroy her palaces. For thus has the Lord of hosts said, Cut down trees and build a mound against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished. She, has, she is full of oppression in her midst. As a fountain wells up with water, so she wells up with her wickedness. Violence and plundering are heard in her. Before me continually are grief and wounds. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate, a land not inhabited. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel, as a grape gatherer put your hand back into the branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning, that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them, They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who is full of days. And their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priests, everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Because of the wickedness of Judah and Benjamin, judgment will come. A great army from the north shall come. God arrays himself against Judah with the enemy. And and when we see things like this in, in Scripture, if we were to jump from 
the time of Joshua to this moment, wouldn't our heads be spinning? Wouldn't we be just wonder, well, how did this happen? How did this even occur? This people that were wholly tied to the Lord, that in Joshua's day were cleaving to him. God's plea is for them to be instructed, verse 8. Be instructed, learn. The same advice, the same command essentially in Proverbs. Get wisdom. Get that knowledge that will help you to follow God. The state of Judah is so against God, though, that he has no one to warn. No one will listen. Verse 10, who am I going to say this to? Who am I going to warn about this? It's as if you're talking to someone that really has no bearing and no idea about what, it, what the issue is. And we find that in the religious world very often, don't we? Sometimes we find that among our own brethren. We talk to them about something and they're just, well, what? what? <laughs> because they don't have that foundation in the word that they ought to have. And again, sometimes we find ourselves in that spot too, don't we? And we have to go back to the Word and restudy and understand those things. God is weary of holding in His fury, and He will pour it out upon Judah. The problems are so deep-seated and intense, yet, verse 14, they want to behave as if everything is all right. And sometimes we do, don't we? Sometimes we don't really want to truly and honestly look at the problems. Their shame has been so corrupted that they essentially have none left. Jeremiah 7 and verse 16. Jeremiah 7 and verse 16. Very similar to what we read in chapter 16. Jeremiah 7 and verse 16. Therefore, do not pray for this people nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods, that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own face? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field, and on the fruit of the ground. And it will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them, Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffen their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. 
Verse 16 contains a shocking command. Do not pray for this people. Do not pray for this people. In 1 Samuel 12, 23, Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. So Samuel is saying it would be a sin for me to stop praying for you. Here's God telling Jeremiah, you don't pray for these people. If you do, I'm not going to hear you. Can we see how bad the situation is? I think that within itself encapsulates, helps, helps us to understand how terrible this is. In this situation, things are so bad that God is instructing them to stop praying for these people. You know, one passage in 1 John 5 and verse 16 really touches on this, and I don't pretend to know exactly what John is saying in this, in this verse, but it goes along kind of the same thought here, the very end of that verse, but the whole verse will read 1 John 5 and verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Now, I don't believe that John is saying don't pray for those who are in the sin leading to death. And really what we're talking about is someone who is unrepentant, someone who does not care, is living a sinful life, and is so far gone. That's what I believe John is talking about there. I don't think he's saying don't pray for them, but I think he is saying don't expect that your prayers for them to really have a great effect. But this is such strong language that he's telling Jeremiah. And even if Jeremiah were to try, Yahweh wouldn't hear him. There's no intercessions this time. There's no Moses there to stop this from happening. There's no person to stand in the gap because the offenses are too great. The Lord's anger will burn and not be quenched. It's not a matter of just making atonement through the sacrifices. The sacrifices are going to do nothing at this point. The problem with Judah is a deficient heart that will not follow God. Another verse that we want to think about here is verse 27. You will speak these words to them, but they will not obey you. They will not hear. You will call to them. You will, uh, you will call to them, but they're not going to answer you. They're not going to, they're going to, not going to have any response whatsoever. God is commanding Jeremiah to do something that by the world's standards will get no definable results whatsoever. He's saying, you go out there and you speak this message. And there's a part of us that kind of says, well, what's the point then? If there's no good that's going to be done, if they're not going to listen, what is the point? I'm afraid that some brethren today have embraced that thought. Well, nobody wants the gospel anymore. Used to be people wanted to focus on the scriptures and learn from the scriptures. No more. Well, we're, we're kind of giving into that mindset at that point, aren't we? Did Jeremiah want to give up? There were certainly times where he did. And I would understand why he might want to, given the nature of the situation and how dire things are and the fact that God says, they will not listen to you. But you know what? Jeremiah still spoke. He still preached. And he still said the truth. Um, there is no good ending here. But 
he commands this because his people have been unfaithful. And one thing I want to note too from, from this passage as well is that he basically says in verse 25, since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt. He is characterizing the whole history of the nation of Israel with unfaithfulness. Again, which is fascinating to me, because I can think of these pinpricks of light throughout Israel's history where everything seems to be going well. But it's kind of like when we, when we try to make up for a bad record in the way that we've behaved and try to say, well, I did this thing right. You know, When the general pattern seems to be one of uh, really wrong or evil, Look at Jeremiah 11. Jeremiah 11. Tough thing about the book of Jeremiah, of course, is wading through all of the destruction and the doom and the gloom and seeing the pinpricks of light shining through. In Jeremiah 11 and verse 6, Then the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. And the Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will surely bring calamity on them, which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense, but they will not save them at all in the time of their time of trouble. For according to the number of their cities were your gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem you have set up altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. So do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry of prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble." Well, what's the solution? In Jeremiah 12 and verse 1. Jeremiah 12 and verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me, and you have tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter, and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn, and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and birds are consumed, and the wickedness of those who dwell there, because they said, He will not see our final end. Jeremiah is not sure why God is allowing all of this to take place. He does not understand why the wicked are prospering so much. And isn't that question in our minds from time to time when we look out in the world and we see what's going on? 
I want us to recognize, too, that he says all this in full respect and fear before God. He questions God with a positive purpose. He does not question God in a way of fighting against him. And this leads us really to the full answer. We're going to back up to chapter 9 again, Jeremiah 9. And we'll read verse 23 and 24. And I think this is really the core of what the solution is. And what really, if Judah had done this, had actually followed this, they still would have been able to avoid the calamity that was going to come upon them. You know, God uses this language like, this is not going to change, I'm not going to relent. But he still has these statements that says, if you turn, I'll do the right thing. Or you'll, you'll do the right thing. Uh, Thus says the Lord, 9.23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. That's the solution. It's not about our own might. And Judah just never really got that. And many times, we don't get that either. This doesn't rest in my own willpower, my own abilities, or my own skills. I can't trust in that alone to be victorious in Christ. I have to glory in the fact that I know Him, that I have a relationship with Him, that He guides me, that I obey Him because He has shown me the truth in His Word. We put the trust in the Lord to do all that He has said He will do and we work toward His goals and toward His ends. Chapter 15 of Jeremiah. Chapter 15. Jeremiah 15, 1-4. Again, some gloom here, but just to recognize some distinctions here. Jeremiah 15, in verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall be, if they say to you, Where should we go? Then you shall tell them, Thus says the Lord, Such as are for death to death, and such as are for the sword to the sword. And such as are for the famine to the famine, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the sword, uh, the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble, to all kingdoms of the earth, because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. One would think that Moses and Samuel would be good representatives to work all this out. And yet God is saying, no, that's not the solution. And even if they were to try to intercede, his mind would not be changed. The cause of this destruction is labeled as being the wickedness of Manasseh. And it's fascinating since Manasseh was redeemed into God's service. But how terrible are the consequences and regrets of a life of sin? Just like the sin of Jeroboam is one that is storied throughout the history of the kingdom of Israel. The fall of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem lay at the feet 
of Manasseh according to the word of God. There is hope, however, in the midst of the promises of destruction. Look at verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vial, you shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall, and they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked. I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. You Think about what he's saying there. He's saying not only will he take them back, he's going to protect them and shield them. I think so many who have lived a life of sin just simply think they're not worth all this. They're not worth what God says He will do. And that comes down to a lack of love, not just for God, but a lack of love for ourselves, a lack of of interest and self-interest in doing the right thing for our own sake. That's so often at the core of these backslidings and these errors. Chapter 18. Chapter 18 and verse 1. What can God do when the situation seems hopeless? He can remake it. In Jeremiah 18 and verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. And I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plan it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, That is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans and we will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. Even though the situation seems hopeless, God shows Jeremiah that it can be changed if, and that is the big word, if his people truly repent from the heart and do good. The issue is always willingness. It's not whether we can or can't. It's willingness. Matthew 21, 31, Jesus says, which of the two did the will of his father? Remember the parable of the one son that said he would go and didn't, and the other son that said he wouldn't but did? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. It is a question of perception that keeps us from fully embracing the will of God 
in our lives and putting that into practice. Do I want to follow God or not? And we have to be honestly asking that question of ourselves. Look at Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah 20 and verse 7. Jeremiah 20 and verse 7. Jeremiah, by the way, is in stocks at this time. He has had his freedom essentially taken away from him. And that's the scene wherein he says this. Jeremiah 20 and verse 7. O Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You were stronger than I, and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder, because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. For I heard many mocking, fear on every side. Report, they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, Perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have pleaded my cause before you. We read earlier in chapter 12, that Jeremiah was sort of taking issue with what God was saying. You know, he's saying, why are you allowing the wicked to prosper in this way? Why is this happening? Now all of that seems to be cast aside, and Jeremiah is completely and totally in with what God is saying. He is completely resolute in his focus. He accepts and encourages the message of destruction that has been repeated by the Lord yet still hopes for the deliverance of his people from the bonds of sin. Can I suggest that's the measure of faith that we need to have? That's the kind of attitude we need to have? That, that if I'm out there, if I'm talking to someone, and I have an opportunity to talk about the Lord, I am not going to hold it back. That his words need to be a burning fire within my bones. And if that's not a burning fire within my bones, something is wrong, and I need to get back to the word and absorb more of it so that it becomes that burning fire, that driving force. There are so many things to consider here. And we could keep going in Jeremiah. But I'd like for us to finish up today in Psalm 74. Psalm 74. We're just going to read the first eight verses of this psalm. And I'd like as we read to focus on what I would term is covenant words. Words like remember. Words like forget. And we want to recognize what this looks like in the picture that it's painting. Psalm 74, 
verses 1 through 8, the contemplation of Asaph. O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. What a dark picture. We don't know if Jeremiah saw the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon, but this is what it might have looked like. The appeal to God in verse 2, remember your congregation. Is there any question or doubt that God remembers? No. And yet the psalmist is beckoning and begging the Lord to remember these things. You go back in Leviticus 26 and you can see those words, remember and forget. I like the definition that Tom Holly has of covenant, that it's an agreement made with commitment and sustained with memory. God's people had a covenant with him, and they broke that covenant. They might have agreed, but they had no true commitment, and they forgot their God. And we want to note that as we look at Jeremiah, we see so many times how God addresses their infidelity, and he uses the term forget. They forgot their God. But God acts upon what's on his mind. He never forgets. He never leaves us alone. So we must remember him. Just a few quick notes of application. Jeremiah's mission was one that by worldly standards was pointless. No one was going to listen. No one was going to respond. And sometimes that's what our mission feels like. Sometimes we feel like nobody is going to respond. Sometimes that is the absolute painful reality of the wicked world. But like so many passages in Jeremiah, we see the hopeful beams of light peeking through the dark clouds of judgment. We take courage and we take encouragement from our own brothers and sisters and continue in this fight against sin and against wickedness. We know trials will come. The real question is whether we will be quiet as Jeremiah thought to do or whether the word will burn in our heart so as not to be held back. Even if our mission seems pointless, we have to remember we're not teaching each other or others just to fill seats or to fill a collection plate. This is for God's glory. And if we're trying to engage and establish something else other than God's glory, our work indeed will truly be pointless. But that mission to accept the word of the Lord, that's the greatest mission we could ever have. 
And that acceptance and that sharing freely with others, at times our voice has to cry out violence and destruction against sin. We sometimes have to bring messages that are not going to be taken well. But that saving grace of God leads us to understand that He wants the best for us. How can we not share that? How can we not see that, even in the midst of the darkness of this world? A number of things that we could keep considering, but I hope this has been useful for you. It's definitely been useful for me. This morning, if you're not a Christian, we encourage you to think about the words that we've read, the words that we've thought about, God's people were a people that had held to Him. And His promise was that if you're faithful to me, you're going to be established forever. And we talked about that in terms of David's throne this morning as well. But of course, they violated that. As we sing this song, I want to think about the fact that if I'm not faithful to God, or if I'm not even a Christian to begin with, I'm not going to be at that place where I never grow old. I'm not going to be at that place where I'm going to have that eternity with him. Let's think about these things seriously. If you need to respond to the gospel call, please do so while we stand and sing.